Welcome to another episode of Bullshit Bronchitis. We watch the Aussie films, so you don't have to. Yep. Join Bill and I as we venture into the very heart of darkness. That is the Australian film industry. Welcome, Bill. Hello. Anyway, so before we jump into things, let's do a tidy up from uh, the last potty. And two things. The first one is I'm going to say something very positive about Sleeping Beauty, which might surprise you. Well, any positive comment surprises me and I haven't even heard it yet. (laughs) Uh, Well, I actually was going to say this last potty, but uh, essentially I really love the poster. I don't know if you saw the poster, but I think it, well, A, it sells the film, but I think it sets the tone and the mood of the film. If, If you don't know the poster, then definitely look it up. I think it's fantastic. I think a lot of movies don't take enough pride in their poster art. Call me, I don't know, call me old school, but I do have a great appreciation for good poster art. And that poster looks great. And while you're looking that up, I'll also say, surprisingly, the trailer for Sleeping Beauty is actually really good. It's a really engaging, ominous trailer that ends with a bit of a inception horn. And yeah, gets me pumped for the film. So it does its yeah, job. Nice. Have you looked up the poster I just looked yet? Up the, I did, and it's exactly what I thought I remembered as the poster. And I, I yeah. Don't you reckon it when is you look what it is? Oh shit! Calm down. Uh, uh, it reminds me of like a like a classical painting or something like that. But um, yeah. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. It looks like a work of art, which clearly doesn't reflect the film, because <laughs> yeah. the film is anything but a work of art. But I think that was the. Uh, not the perspective, but I think that's the direction that they're trying to get to is that this film is IE art, uh, which I think the poster does well. And like I said, after this, watch the trailer. I find it just really engaging. Okay. Second point, quick tidy up. Surprisingly, you and I have female listeners on this podcast. Hey, (laughs) I heard an S there. Don't get it carried away with plurals just yet. We have a female listener. We have a female listener. Anyway, so she messaged me after she listened to the potty, Sleeping Beauty potty. And she said, you know what? I'll tell you something about Lucy. She hasn't seen the movie. This is purely by... And she listened to the whole podcast too, which even surprises me even more. <laughs> it's not like, hey, I'll listen to the first five minutes, you know, at a, you know, just being nice and friendly, whatever. But she said she listened to the whole podcast, which I do believe. Anyway, so I'll read out her text message verbatim. And when I read this, I was like, you know what? This is really plausible for Lucy's character. Is it explained in the film? No, but I think her actions could have spelt out this. Anyway, so the text message reads, daddy issues. Daddy gave her loads of cash rather than being a father-male figure in her life. What do you reckon? Fair enough. I don't know. She didn't scream out to me that she had loads of cash. Um, oh, no, but it's one of those things where if you've seen that, uh, it, it happens all the time where I can't, uh, what's the word, relate, but very wealthy children seem to have this very weird, well, I think it's more of a wealth thing than whether you have daddy issues. But, you know, like a simple example is that film Into, Into the Wild with Amelia Hirsch that's based on a true story and it's like oh yeah i'm super wealthy but then he burns all his cash and goes you know true backpacking across america and this and that and they've got this i know really wealthy kids have this weird thing where they have to prove to everyone they can make it on their own and nick minute they ate some berries and died and they they can't make it on their own (laughs) that's the moral of the story for into the wild don't shoot the moose 
Don't shoot the moose. Have no idea what you're talking about, but anyway. Uh, what I was going to say is, yeah, no, daddy issues. I, I, I didn't really, you and I didn't really think about that at all, but absent father, no mention of the father at all in any passing conversation. But I was like, you know what? It is plausible. So yeah. anyway, thank you to, uh, I'll name drop her, but we'll bleep it out. Thank you, Brian Brown, for that insightful feedback. Anyway. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers, big ears. Anyway, all right, let's get straight into this bad boy for our episode seven of the podcast, The Hunter. All righty. So The Hunter is based on the acclaimed novel by Julia Lee, directed by Daniel Nettin or Nettheim, and written by Alice Addison. It stars American veteran actor Willem Dafoe in the lead, with Sam Neill and Frances O'Connor in the supporting cast. There are a few familiar faces in the background, such as Dan Wiley and Sullivan Stapleton. This film was shot entirely in the state of Tasmania. So the plot, simply put, a lone mercenary is sent to the wilds of Tasmania by a shadowy biotech company in an effort to find and extract the DNA of an animal long believed extinct, the thylacine. This is an important job. You're looking for something most believe is extinct. There's no room for mistakes, so don't make any. Also, nominated 13 times at the Actor Awards and won in the categories of Best Music and Best Cinematography. Yep. Which Snowtown should have won, by the way. <laughs> yeah, we did this. We did glance across this once before. And um, I found it interesting that the Best Sound the year before this was won by Animal Kingdom which should have won Best Cinematography as well. Anyway. Hmm. Yeah, beautiful film. No no getting around that. Absolutely capitalised on the, the Tasmanian setting. So I can see how they would have awarded Best Cinematography, but I, I think it was more the material they were working with than the cinematography itself. Hmm. But that's just my two cents. Yeah, there's always been, I guess, before I started actually filmmaking, I think a lot of people get confused. What was that noise? I think it was the, because you've got me to open my jumper, my zipper's exposed, and that uh, was the cord rubbing against the zipper. I thought that was a bit of a tummy rumble. I was like, okay. <laughs> I'll tuck that away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So essentially before I started filmmaking, and I guess before I started taking film criticism seriously, is that I, with every other common man, just assume cinematography is just good, good shots of landscapes. For the most part, I remember one of the takeaways from the film Australia, someone said to me, oh, the cinematography was really good. And I said, why? Oh, that 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 range of hills looked really nice. <laughs> and well, that's a very, very, very small part of cinematography is doing uh, landscape shots. And anyway, so I'll just write off that section completely. We will get back to it. But I wanted to start well, off. I, I wanted to start off this episode with something extremely extremely controversial now <laughs> what what would you what would you say to me if i told you dead set i've seen a thylacine in real life yeah it would have been in a museum stuffed yeah you're oh, i don't think you're gonna be that cluey no that's right <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, oh, you fuck. I thought you were going to be like, no, nah, no way, man. Fuck off. That's what yeah. that was the reaction I was hoping you would take. But now you've, you've thrown up my whole setup. It's ruined everything now. 
anyway, so, roll. yeah, so this, so the, there was no, sorry, listeners, there was no payoff to that joke or anything. It was just completely wasted now. Anyway, but all I'll say is it is at Melbourne Museum and there's a section of taxidermied animals. However, I thought, well, the thylacine is extinct. It should have its own little exhibition and have a grand sort of area. It shouldn't be in the same section as a fucking stuffed galah. <laughs> I think that I think there's a bit more prestige behind a thylacine than there is a galah, uh, yeah. which are, which are in one plague. of the most prolific native pests in Australia. Yeah, it's literally in plague proportion. So I think Melbourne Museum selling the thylacine short there, but I thought it was cool. It is a cool looking animal, and I can see mm. the natural the natural attraction to people when they see it. It, it is a very cool looking animal. Uh, Especially like you see the footage from the Melbourne Zoo where it's like that span of its jaw when it opens its mouth and yawns. That's mm. pretty bloody impressive. Yeah, that actually is very impressive. And I think that actually was Hobart uh, Zoo. Was it? That would make more sense. But I'm sure there might have been some in the mainland and then they just, I don't know, they probably just died out anyway. But no, the thylacine is actually quite an incredible animal. And what I'll say to you is, did you know what type of species is a thylacine? Species? Mm. Wouldn't even, yeah, I wouldn't even have a guess. It is actually, and I'll tell you this with a longer anecdote. I read a New York Times review article about this film and they had to do a correction. I have a guess. Mm, okay, I have a guess. Is it a marsupial? That is correct. It is a marsupial. Hey. So I so there was a correction at the at the bottom of this New York Times article that says a film review on Friday about the hunter in which the prey is the animal known as the Tasmanian tiger referred imprecisely to its relationship to the wolf. While all life forms are related in the broadest sense, the Tasmanian tiger, which is believed to be extinct, was a marsupial and thus not a relative of a wolf. There you go. And I, I watched a very short doco from the 60s about the thylacine. And I'll tell you what's crazy. So since it's a marsupial, right, it actually had a pouch and the mother, when she went hunting and stuff, would have its baby, I don't know, it's not a joey, I don't know we'd call it, baby thylacine in the pouch when it's running like a, like a dingo. Hmm. How, it, fucking hell, Australia's got some cooked animals. The thylacine, <laughs> the thylacine with a pouch and the platypus, they are two cooked animals. Yeah. Don't forget echidnas, man. They're pretty strange. Yeah, we've got they have pr like I can't remember it's four or eight, but there's several prongs on the penis of an echidna. I think it's a four pronged penis. Do you know that from uh, up close experience? <laughs> yes. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And it haunts me to this day. <laughs> okay. Whatever. We'll, we'll, we'll just we'll just end that there. <laughs> Sorry, I've just I just started visualizing you. They're like. <laughs> trying to get that little echidna dick <laughs> and you're like ah little prick echidna wants schmoosh moosh on that note before we dive deep dive into this bad boy film another another interesting controversial fact actually well not fact but controversial uh, element about the thylacine besides me seeing a taxidermied one at the Melbourne Museum is our good friend Brian Brown. He uh, who you met recently at the Bucks. 
He um, actually has a video on YouTube that no joke, it's about the thylacine. We'll just call him some, well, for the for the potty, do we want to call him the thylacine or do we want to call it Tassie Tiger or Tiger for short? How do we want to do it? Because we have to mention it so many times. Thylacine, I suppose. Yeah, all right. let's go all, let's all go technical, all scientific. So we'll go stick with the thylacine. We won't refer to it as a Tassie Tiger in its colloquial sense. But anyway, my uh, good mate- Brian Brown has- uh, a video on YouTube about the thylacine, no joke, 1.8 million views for this one minute clip. I should have sent it to you before we did started the um, episode. Anyway, so he's got 1.8 million views with the claim that when he went to Tassie in 2012, he filmed a sighting of the tiger. <laughs> and <laughs> he must have, I don't know how he did it, but he must have somehow got footage from the film, like a DVD rip or something. And he made it really pixelated and grainy and all that. And if you didn't know the movie existed, The Hunter, you'd actually think it's a fairly legitimate clip to how he's edited it and the, fil- <laughs> and the filters he's put over the footage. So I think he was just riding on that success just as that film came out. Because before that, all you had was archival footage of the thylacine, where for this film, they actually spent a bit of dosh to digitally recreate it. Anyway, so he's got 1.8 million views. 5,000 likes, nearly 4,000 dislikes, <laughs> and a lot, a lot of angry comments. <laughs> uh, fuck, I love YouTube. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of them are That's like, fair. it's great. Anyway, I'll send you the clip. It's great. Good stuff. Want to get through this? Let's go. So, my good uh, friend, the cook, did you enjoy this film? we're working on the binary scale is is did i enjoy it or did i not i would say yes i did it's not a terrible film but i felt like it was holding itself back felt like it was unrealized in some way Mm. well i would say to be honest this was the second time i'd seen this film i think i originally watched it quite a few years ago and i don't know if it was the right mood or i actually I, i put it down to that the last film we reviewed was sleeping beauty which had no emotional core, had no progression in a lot of aspects. And I actually really enjoyed this film. I enjoyed it. uh, I was actually really surprised when the movie wrapped up. I just had that sort of cathartic release that there's a beautiful shot, even though Snowtown's better. There was a beautiful shot from behind with Willem Dafoe holding his recently... uh, killed thylacine and i don't know i just i don't know i just had this sort of moment i thought it was pretty emotional and yeah it resonated with me so obviously we're going to get to the to the fact that julia lee wrote and directed sleeping beauty and julia lee wrote the source material for this movie i probably should have said that up uh, sorry up front of this potty but i probably should have said we're doing a julia lee back-to-back podcast episodes <laughs> just to get it yeah. out of the just get it out of the way so we don't have to come back to it but yeah go Yay. on do you feel like this film showcases julia lee's skills better or what are your thoughts it's hard to say however it well it's hard because she didn't she didn't actually write the screenplay for this nor did she direct so and we haven't read the novel either and i'll tell you one thing too this might be a slight uh, transition but so far with all the movies we've reviewed so far for this podcast 
out of out of all the sort of mainstream media, the one I relate to the most is actually SBS movie reviews. It's to be honest, it's actually really bang on with you know when I watch a certain film and I read their sort of points of why they didn't like it or why they did like it and and the little uh, nuance in between. Did you read the review for SBS for this film? Not for SBS, no. Okay, all I can say is from now on, always read SBS because I was like, fuck, did I write this? What the fuck's going on here? They, they, were, they were pretty harsh. However, what I would say is I would have written the same uh, criticism on my first viewing, but on my second viewing, I've sort of learned how to love this film. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. I find the more interesting part is that everything that there is to love about this film does not come from Julia Lee. Okay. They actually, they changed the story quite a bit towards the end. Well, definitely um, through, definitely at the end, uh, they change it. But, mm. all right, so we're, we're going to jump, all right, so we're jumping, what, we're doing novel differences versus film differences? Is that where we're going right now? I guess so, because it does tie in directly to my enjoyment of it. I think everything enjoyable about this film directly in, you know, you could juxtapose it to Sleeping Beauty is the fact that it does have, it does show character development. It does show burgeoning relationships. It shows like it has the the dramatic build and the cathartic release, you know, like. Um, that's what you need. That's what you need for a good story, mate. You, that's yeah. what you need. So go on. But, um, <laughs> but from, without having read the novel, it is an acclaimed novel. So obviously people out there did like it, but all those elements are absent from the novel, from what I can tell. In the novel, mm. the the protagonist, um, Martin David, or M, um, as he's called in the novel, Willem Dafoe in the film, mm-hmm. he, he does seem a lot more clinical and he doesn't build as close a relationship with Lucy and Bike and Sass, the, the family that he does in the film. He doesn't have that character redemption where... You know, he, he kills the last thylacine and, and destroys the remains for a, a good purpose mm. uh, or for what he sees as a good purpose. He just literally fulfills his contract. He kills it. He harvests it for the biochemical weapons or whatever he's supposed to do. And then, you know, burns the rest and fucks off. So you, you don't have that redemption. And like, I was reading an excerpt from a book which was called Animal Death, which had a little bit of a exploration of the motivations of killing the thylacine in the film. But it has a quote from Susie O'Neill, who's a sales agent with an Australian film distribution company. Mm. She says, to sell a low budget featured audiences, it must have a positive message, a bit of a redemption at the end with a punchy soundtrack. Downbeat films about dysfunctional characters where it's more depressing at the end than at the beginning are the biggest turnoff. <laughs> and that's spot on. And that's what that's the swing and a miss that Julia Lee had with Sleeping Beauty. And that's the redemption A in the story of the hunter and B in the screenplay, is that they actually did give it a bit of a bit of a redemption story towards the end. Well that's true. Well they humanized it. And yeah. like one of your criticism about Sleeping Beauty is because I feel like we have to talk about sort of both films because it's by the same sort of, I guess, mindset or the same writer, really. 
so her personality is in both films whether mm. how, how much it's altered for the hunter the film itself you know is up for debate but i guess the main thing your criticism with sleeping beauty was it was very um what's the word uh not mechanical was it not meticulous clinical, clinical that's the one yeah so clinical meaning there wasn't any heart to it there was no emotion to it like lucy was so apathetic and detached from sort of reality but definitely detached from her emotions and Willem Dafoe's character in this, well, his, his, I don't know, not his pseudonym, but I guess his sort of alias is Martin David. We actually never find out what his real name is, but we'll, we'll just refer to him as Martin anyway in this uh, piece, is that I think my understanding is in the novel that, yeah, he is not a very humanised character. He's very mm. detached socially. He's a loner. And I guess that's the whole thing with the hunter is that he's hunting the last of his kind, which is the thylacine, and he sees himself in the uh, thylacine and that's why well I don't know about the book but in the film itself when he kills the thylacine he's sort of killing metaphorically himself <laughs> and setting himself yeah. free and moving on I, th I think one of the biggest criticisms was and I probably had this at the same time when I first watched it was the lack of backstory for Willem Dafoe could this movie been helped with some flashbacks Maybe. Like I said, I'm a bit put off by flashbacks because they're overused. However, two things. It's either flashbacks or he could have just had it at dinner table conversations. And I think something that could have really helped, right? So if the thylacine is the last of its kind and he's been tasked with trying to kill it, couldn't Willem Dafoe's character, instead of being American, couldn't he have been from like Kosovo or Bosnia and he was like in a small ethnic group that got cleansed in the awful Yugoslavian, you know, uh, ethnic cleansing that was happening in the 90s or something sorry this is very specific but what I was going to say is like his family and his small sort of ethnic group was entirely cleansed meaning obviously they were executed in the genocide but he fled to America and then because of that he became a mercenary blah 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 and if he had that relationship or that backstory so when he's looking at the thylacine it's like this is the last of his kind because they were hunted down by colonial farmers you know, uh, mm. colonial Anglo-Saxon Anglo farmers in Tasmania, and they were hunted down and just seen as, you know, vermin and this and that. And if Willem Dafoe's character had that backstory that, you know, his family had been genocide, had been committed against them, and he was the last of his kind ethnically, then that would have made that story just really would have had that yeah. punch and like i liked most other things about this film but if it just had that bit of a backstory and all you needed was a few table conversations I mean, you didn't have to have flashbacks and clearly with this budget they couldn't show the balkans war or something but mm. if they just had that backstory i reckon this movie would have been bang on masterpiece but we, he was just still too vague yeah as a character which is a real shame well i think um the other method of possible exposition, which I think was the gist of the novel itself, was he had a very strong or a very prevalent internal monologue. And that's the nature think, of a lot of novels. Yeah. Which doesn't reflect so, which doesn't reflect well in cinema. No, and I've seen it I've seen it done well in some cases where there's quite a bit of um I guess narration from the character. But yeah, for for this kind of film where it is very atmospheric um that narration would have been a bit jarring so i think mm. that's why that's what led them to instead of just recreating that monologue and and being at odds with the atmosphere of the film they instead chose to you know change it up a bit with the screenplay and 
to its merit, I think it did um, it did better off for that. And I would say as well, uh, I watched a few interviews with the director, Daniel, and he said they made a conscious decision not to do any voiceovers or narration, uh, which is clear because obviously he doesn't say a word that's not directly spoken from his mouth. <laughs> You'd like this. Uh, I watched this interview with Willem Dafoe and the interviewer asked him, oh, did you go to the book to fill in the blanks, like fill in the blanks for the character in the story? So that's what the interviewer was referring to. And Willem Dafoe, more or less verbatim, said, I did go to the book, but there really wasn't any information in there. <laughs> uh, which I was like, oh, there's that old chestnut sleeping beauty. <laughs> well, uh, it's hmm. it was surprising, like, again, with, with the caveat that I haven't read the book, but every reference that I found to the book in interviews or comparisons with the film or whatever, the book did seem to share a lot of parallels with Sleeping Beauty where, you know, it was a very isolated protagonist that was, I guess, at odds with the world around them and showed no redemption towards the end. But I just, I don't know, I guess it's it's um, horses for courses, but that doesn't sound like my idea of a, of a story I want to bet into for a bit. Well, like I said, the, the medium of literature and novels is very different to cinema and the funny thing is the most you know this book is quite acclaimed and as a result julia lee actually got a mentorship by a nobel laureate as a result of her writing this novel which is pretty impressive but it's funny the most uh, i guess famous literature of the 20th century really what is it some bloke walking around a city with his inner thoughts like catcher in the rye what's the other one mrs dalloway by Virginia Woolf, what, what happens? She walks around the streets of London. <laughs> like, it, it's funny, most of the great literature of the 20th century is very short and the story itself is very, very simple. But where the beauty is, is in the craft of writing itself, which mm. is great in that medium, but in, you know, in film, you need to show it visually, you need things to keep ticking over. As a short film, you could have the hunters, Willem Dafoe, like for a 10-minute film, he could just be walking around with a rifle and not saying anything, and you can let the the cinematography tell the story. But for a 90 or 100-minute runtime, you've got to add more stuff to it. You've got to chuck in random subplots with loggers and, you know, greenies and, you know, the university and academia versus, you know, true blue... Uh, blue collar work you're going to chuck uh, that maybe was already in the book but you got to chuck in some more juicier stuff because otherwise your audience 90 100 minutes you can't keep them entertained but for 10 minutes mm. yeah he can walk around and not talk at all and it could be very engaging but like i said your novels and cinema are very very different mediums and one thing that can be great in one might not necessarily reflect well in another <laughs> I think overall, there wasn't too many plot holes in this story, for me personally, not like some of the films we reviewed previously. Well, I don't know if there was too many plot holes in Sleeping Beauty. It was more just sort of lack of character motivation. But I tell you what, okay, here we go. We'll play a game. In this film, who had the strangest, I don't know if I want to use the term motivation, but who was the character that made the least amount of sense in this film? Who made the least amount of sense? If you really, if, like, if you really thought about his, well, shit, I already ruined. I already said his, but if you really thought about his character and sort of how the story unfolded, you sort of thought, wait, hold on a second. Probably Jack Mindy. Good old Jack Mindy, who apparently in the yeah. novel had a wife. In, yeah, I in, saw that. 
yeah so in this one obviously doesn't exist so my my thing to you is simply this so yeah there's a there's a pseudo love triangle right so sam neil well we, we won't use the word love but he had a fondness for francis o'connor's character which was lucy armstrong so if he had a fondness right and he was being very protective and essentially a modern simp <laughs> so he was you know simping for uh lucy but if he was doing that, why didn't he just have Willem Dafoe stay at his house? That's a good question. Yeah, so that's, um, that's, so that's my first question. Why wouldn't he just have Willem Dafoe stay at his house? And secondly, if he, what was his motivation for just drugging Francis O'Connor's character? Well, it's sort of, the mind straight away goes to somewhere sinister. Like, you know, you're drugging this woman, you're probably giving her a tickle up here and there. She might not know about it, but then you, at the same time. So, so, so your mind went there. And when I first watched this film, I didn't think that because I hadn't seen Sleeping Beauty yet. But after seeing <laughs> Sleeping Beauty and we're doing a Julia Lee special back to back, I was thinking, you know what? Is Sam Neill's character pulling man number four, Sleeping Beauty? Because I'm like, because <laughs> he's, he's making zero effort to a look after the kids like the kids are just running like wild there's no power mm. there's no power to the house which he's made no attempt to restore and like there's no actual running water in this house and this woman's just passed out and the kids are sort of somewhat feeding themselves so clearly there's like huge amount of well there's a neglect from the mother but huge amount of neglect from sam neil who's you know of sound mind adult but he lets the kids what not go to school there's no mention of them mm. and about their schooling so they're clearly not going to school they're not taken into foster care he's not even looking after them so my end conclusion with the mind frame of julia lee and sleeping beauty is that he's doing uh non-consensual things with lucy's character that would be my logical conclusion there yeah well see sort of what would make most sense would be like he'd keep her drugged and out of the equation while he profits from renting out this place at the foot of the mountain um, yeah, but but to who with who these the, shady characters who the fuck else but, would be renting that place yeah well the the people that keep coming <laughs> and keep getting shot i suppose um <laughs> but at the same time if that <laughs> There's all these people from the university just getting killed up there. And Sam Neil's just like, yeah, all right, another one from the uni. All right, I'll, I'll send another one. They could, they, they could be. They, I don't know. Yeah. Maybe. Well, that that would make the most sense. But at the same time, it, it did inject some sort of emotion in there, like where he he was very protective of his dominance over Lucy or his relationship with Lucy, which was sort of non-existent because she was you know in a drug-induced stupor all the time and if he's he if he's so protective then why send men to that house why would that's he just what i don't understand yeah why would it's they just of, why wouldn't they just stay with him in the bachelor pad yeah it seems at odds with each other and he's driving up there every other day anyway so you know if he <laughs> if he needed to go up the mountain just jump in the ute you know i'm going there anyway but you want to get through this I'll tell you one yeah. thing I wanted to bring up. It's it's not so much a connection to Cactus, right? However, didn't you find it weird, right? So in Cactus, Brian Brown looked after one third of the continent's landmass for law enforcement. However, yeah. 
in this film in Tasmania, did you find it weird there was not one police based character? Like, I surely, like, just even a fleeting scene with a police officer, I think, was probably necessary. Even if it just added the, the tension to being like, oh, maybe he's unsure why Willem Dafoe's actually here. I just found it weird that the whole state of Tasmania didn't have one police officer. Especially when there's, you know, burgeoning riots between loggers and <laughs> the greenies. But Yeah. Well, the reason why I brought that up, because I would have thought Jack Mindy's character, which is Sam Neill, that would have made the most amount of sense because all, all the plot holes are around Sam Neill's character. And if Sam Neill's character was the local cop, that would make a lot of sense. The example I'll use is like when he first takes uh, Willem Dafoe to the mountain ranges, right? He stops at that blockade and he's talking to all the greeny protesters, right? And they seem pretty chummy. But then, you know, an hour later, because, you know, Willem said, fuck off, you know, this is my woman and, you know, put an end to the love triangle. Sam Neill just jumps sides and goes with the loggers and, you know, shoots at, you know, the love of his life. And then he's in the back seat putting the hat down. And I just thought his that character motivation would have made the most amount of sense minus don't worry about the love triangle but if he was the cop it was about him just playing sides so yeah. i don't know i don't really understand again it's hard to compare to the source material because i haven't read it but it seemed almost like there wasn't a lot of payoff to that side story either you know which um, one the jack mindy side story because I'll, I'll jump actually while we're on that i might as well jump into my biggest gripe yeah for sure film. go yeah was that you spent this time, you're on a journey. You are, you know, the, the film's seen from the lens of Martin David. You're uh, on the journey with him right from the airport in Paris all the way to Tasmania, to the top of the mountain, uh, everything else. You start building a relationship with this woman and her kids. And then, obviously, circumstances intervene and tensions build and you end up murdering a man at the top of the mountain. And it's, it's quite, by this point of the film, it's quite emotionally charged, you know, like you, you feel like the stakes are high. You, you see that, what's his name? Callan Mulvey. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. He, well, what was he? He's been in like, he's one of those, he's like Dan Wiley. He shows up in heaps of Australian TV and films. Well, he, he's actually, he's broken into the American film industry, but only as minor characters. Like he's been in a couple of the Marvel movies and stuff like that, but. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, you have the confrontation with him. Martin David comes out better off, but then he sees the map with his coordinates that was left in the house. So he's obviously going to rush back to the house and see what's happened. Mm. But I feel like for all the all the effort that was put into building the relationship with the people in that house, with Lucy and Sass and Bike, mm. just for the fact that he sees the house burnt down and goes, talk, goes and talks to Jack Mindy, and he just said, yep, the woman and the girl, they perished in the fire and the kid's been sent away with the government, more or less. I just feel like that was it was too laissez-faire. Like, it was too just by the way. Um, yeah, it didn't I'd, I'd agree those with characters, that. Yeah, it didn't give the characters the attention or the, the gravitas that they deserved. Like, it should have been more profound or more dramatic. I, yeah, I 100% agree. That, yeah, because it's interesting, the gravitas that they deserved... Because we're at the, the pointy end of the film, 
we're at the very point end of the film and like sleeping beauty like i said it was painfully understated this film wasn't painfully understated but it was understated and i think at that moment i was thinking about that too i was like were we better off willem going to the burnt out house while i was still partially smoldering and he was the one that discovered the bodies and then he mm. discovered the young boy hiding in the shed you know like should should have that sort of emotional climax been more him discovering the house and the little boy and not sort of with jack mindy at his house mm. yeah. like, i i feel like where where that sort of emotional payload should have gone like what location should have that been at jack mindy's house which i can't remember had we ever been there before maybe once no have we ever been to that house i don't think so i think the only time you see jack mindy is either at lucy's house or just like passing by each other on the road Mm. so so you so we as an audience have no connection to this place like it means nothing to us where Sam Neill's character lives, but that house means everything because that's where the whole emotional, all the emotional connections, emotional payoffs, and build up, set up, it's all there in that house. So should if he does, he, he it should have been like Gladiator, like Russell Crowe, like he discovers hanged and burnt corpses of his uh, wife and son. That should have been it. Should have been a real climactic high stakes payoff i reckon because you know yeah. jack's jack's house has got no we've got no emotional connection to that as an audience but this wooden house we do all the beautiful moments are there and yeah it just seemed pretty weird it's just like it, it sort of seemed like i don't know if it was sam neil's acting but it it sort of seemed when he said lucy's dead and the girl's dead it's it seemed like he was lying hmm. i don't know if that was well, the vibe it, it you got seemed... but it, it felt like it, it felt like he was lying from one man who loves her, apparently, that's what I'm assuming of Jack Mindy. He was in mm. love with Lucy. And doing and, uh, Man Number Four, Sleeping Beauty Chamber stuff, yeah. Yeah. And mm-hmm. you, you would argue that Martin David was also in love with Lucy at this point. Oh, yeah, for and sure. There is that there is that mutual respect between two people that love the same woman. Mm-hmm. And that's obviously the point at which they're discussing now. So you've got these two people that are in love with the same woman who's just died. And then... Jack Mindy just says so matter-of-factly, the woman and the, the girl, they perished in the fire. And I just felt like that was such a throwaway comment. Like, they didn't dwell on it. They didn't... There was no cathartic release, no emotional outburst. There was no mutual loss that the two men showed. It was just glossed over, which mm. just didn't really connect for me. Especially... And, and this... I guess this is up to your own interpretation, but I felt like especially with the fact that bike doesn't speak except in one scene where you can't hear him because it's, you know, to a musical montage or whatever, because bike doesn't speak, I would say that he's the character that the viewer least connected with. So for Mm. him to be the one that survives and for that to be the profound payoff moment, just didn't really connect for me. I thought if they were going to leave only one survivor, it should have been Sass instead. You know, like the kid that's quite chatty and quite charismatic, and mm. she would and she would have like been that. a bit too nonchalant, though. I think that's why they let her die, because if she was alive, she'd be like, "Yeah, mum's dead, fuck," you know, because she was so <laughs> swore well, swore so casually and and all that. So, I would argue, like, and this is me, who's obviously not a director, talking about different directions, but. I would argue that if Sass was like that for most of the film and really 
like you said, just swearing casually and really nonchalant and really matter of fact and in your face kind of thing. Mm. For that would have been a good opportunity to show the contrast of her before and after this incident, you know, to see this kid as someone who's broken and then needing Martin David to help her through it or something like that. Because I reckon from the little bit that I saw of her, she she seemed like a pretty she seemed like a pretty handy little actress. Like I reckon she would have been able to pull off the before and after that that emotional intensity. But I think I think story wise, what you're saying makes sense. But it's interesting. One of the interviews I uh, listened to with Defoe, he's because a lot of them asked him about, oh, how was it working with the children and all that. And he made the comment, which like this, there's no malice behind it. It was just a, he's, he seems like a very friendly guy, <laughs> like in interviews. He, he sort of seems like you're sort of not as happy, intense as Dave Grohl for Foo Fighters, but he has this sort of air of like, you know, I've been doing this for decades and I love it. He's not guarded and he just answers questions how he, how he feels. Anyway, but Defoe on the kids, he said they're more children than they are actors which means, A, they don't really have any experience and the way that they played the room was just very much like children. You know, they are children, but they weren't professional actors. But I would say from a director's standpoint, I agree with what you're saying to some extent, but I would say the reason why they kept the boy alive is because cinema's power in storytelling is visual storytelling. So there's a really big thing now with mute kids or kids with severe autism who don't talk And the way that their relationships progress or way they make connections is a very visual thing. And, you know, all his interactions with the boy was like him starting up the generator and the boy would just watch by or give him, you know, the the Phillips head screwdriver or give him this part. And it was very, the way their relationship progressed and how they connected was a very physical thing where his relationship with the little girl was very, it was a verbal relationship, which is how most of us actually connect in real life is verbally but but cinema loves visual storytelling and you could literally see the Defoe and the and bike their relationship develop visually on screen without any words and and everybody in cinema is like yeah that's beautiful yeah sorry go mm. it's it's probably worth mentioning that Morgana Davies now Morgan Davies she was nominated for Best Supporting Actress, uh, best, best Actress in a Supporting Role at the Actor Awards in 2011 for her role in The Hunter. But she actually okay. lost out to Louise Harris for Snowtown. Yeah, my girl. Yeah. Uh, but I thought that was, um, that's, a, that's a pretty big effort for a, a child of only, you know, I would say under 10 years old, I don't know, to go up with the likes of, um, you know, the best in the industry. What another non-actress? Well, um, <laughs> that's what they are. She, she, she. Both of them are non-actresses. Both of them are. But oh, there was really? also Helen Morris, Helen Morse, and Alexandra Shipisi. I don't know if they shit Shipisi. Fucking hell! Pronounce the name right. How do you pronounce it? I don't know. <laughs> it looks like Schwepsy. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that, the actually the two other nominees were from the same film, The Eye of the Storm. I don't know. Oh, you're talking about the director. The director's called like Fred Shepsey, uh, something. I yeah. So the actress has the same surname. Oh, okay. Surely a relation, but yeah. The family didn't get the send off they deserved. Oh yeah. So yeah, I think that's quite important. So. What we'll do is we won't talk so much about the differences in the novel, but I'll just read 
very quickly what happens in the novel. And I, I prefer how they did it in the film, but they just needed to move certain characters and certain events to different locations to make it really sink and hit home. But in the novel itself, after a prolonged absence, Emma arrives back in Tasmania to find the Armstrong house empty. Mindy's wife, which doesn't exist in the movie, relates that during his absence, Sass was admitted to a children's hospital in Sydney, having been involved in a house fire that left her severely burned. Lucy, suffering from a mental breakdown, was placed into a mental hospital and bike was put into foster care. Em returns to the escarpment, now patrolled by National Park people, and spends the following weeks subsisting in the forest. He comes across a camp set up by two adolescents, dumb fucking names, but called Small and Tall, and stalks them until he comes across the suspected lair of the thylacine. After a time, he emerges from the lair and shoots the animal, killing it. He dissects it and then burns the body. On his return journey down the escarpment, he encounters Tall and Small, who are unaware of his real purpose or actions. So... I would say literally from reading that, which is a quick summary of the, the novel's ending, is that the film is far superior in tying up a lot mm. of things. So for a TV show, you could have had all those send-offs like bike and foster care, the mum having a mental breakdown and the sass in the hospital, but that's a lot of tidy up. You know, you're trying to get that emotional high point and that gut punch. And that's just, that's just too much noise. That's too much happening for those three characters. Like, what's Willem Dafoe going to go? Go see Bike in foster care. Go see Lucy in the hospital and go and see Sass in the, in the physical hospital. You know, that's, that's, that's a lot of on-air time. And you just don't have that same emotional resonance. But I, I, I would say, okay, this is my other issue with the way the ending panned out was okay and i'm surprised you didn't mention this so lucy and the daughter died in the fire why the fuck how did the boy survive if the only shot we saw was the boy sorry the brother and the sister sleeping next to the fire how how did he (laughs) how did he get out unscathed when those two got burnt horrifically to death Mm. well you don't Without seeing it, you'll never know. But you could only argue that, you know, the agent, Callum Mulvey, came into the house and started fucking shit up and he escaped. I don't know. But it does seem like... it's. Let me just put it this way. It was it's an easy fix if they just changed, not the camera angle, but if they literally just had the boy sleeping in a different room or a different space and the girl sleeping by yeah. the fire, fine, whatever. Or the mum and the daughter sleeping by the fire and the boy is upstairs in his bedroom hugging a picture of the Tassie tiger, you know, mm. that I would have had no qualms if that's literally how they played it out, but they didn't. The shot was the brother and sister next to the fire, but the brother comes out without any smoke inhalation, no, no third degree burns, completely fine. And also I say, so a fire happened. So did the little boy make a phone call or did Jack Mindy just see a glow in the middle of the night? What, like, I don't know. It just seemed a bit glossed over. Yeah. One thing, because I'm presuming that you got your little synopsis from the Wikipedia page for the novel as well. Oh, probably. I wasn't going to go. I was going to do a deep dive for researching about the novel. Well, I was just curious because reading that same synopsis, there's no mention of the other agent. There's no mention of Callan Mulvey's character. Mm. I'm actually curious as to whether that character is in the book at all. I feel um, like it's a no, but that's a complete assumption. Because yeah. I feel like they've added it to add to the stakes of the film. Yeah, because it brings in like an adversarial sort of mm. um, lens to it as well, which was it was exciting. I found that probably the most exciting part of the film is when you know the two of them have their confrontation on top of this plateau. 
Yeah, the way that the way that scene played out was the, the tension was there. I thought, "Fuck, how's this going to pan out?" Yeah, but then, but then it begs the question, though: Should have his adversary come into the plot sooner? Should have he been like his not random work colleague, but he's searching other areas, and he can still be a very minor character, but you know that you could just him having that ever lurking presence i think maybe would have served the plot better mm. as opposed to just really really tacked on at the end well he he was in that opening scene at oh the he Paris was airport. but it, that was very but, blink blink and you'll miss it yeah and then it's it's almost implied that he's just sitting around waiting for the call you know mm. at the same time i think there's a little bit of a disconnect there where well, there's two disconnects one is the fact that okay you want someone to hunt down this presumed presumably extinct creature mm. what let's see who who would i want to get to hunt down an animal would i get a professional hunter or would i get a mercenary who hunts down men you know like because mm. every mention of martin david is that he's a mercenary mercenary this mercenary that blah 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 dealing with shady companies but i would imagine that hunting humans is different from hunting a tasmanian tiger oh for sure so, yeah, I, I would go towards a professional hunter, which you know, there are plenty of those around, or maybe at least someone who knows the area or knows Australia or knows Tasmania, however finally you want to slice it. But Yeah, why would you send yeah. a foreigner who doesn't know the land at all or the flora yeah. and fauna to, to do really get into the shit? Uh, yeah. That's probably a so, good point, really. Why don't you just get a professional hunter? And then yeah. you send Willem Dafoe. And when, and when he get, catches a thylacine, you send Willem Dafoe in to knock him off. That's the thing. So you suspend disbelief enough to say that, yes, Willem Dafoe is the right man for the job of mercenary. So then you've got Callan Mulvey, who I don't know what it is, whether it's just the demeanour of the character or the way it's directed or the way it's filmed. He seems like a much more capable or a much more disciplined mercenary than Martin David does. You know, like mm. Martin David, you, you see him carrying through. He obviously seems like a competent hunter, but he's just doing his thing. And then all of a sudden you get Callum Mulvey comes along. He's got the jump on him from the start. He's running it like he's very direct with his language. He's very disciplined, almost military. And you don't see any of those aspects in Willem Dafoe's character. So, mm. again, not a not a writer, not a director, but what I would have done is sent the professional hunter in, aka Willem Dafoe, and then once he finds the creature or doesn't, then you sell, then you send the mercenary in, which is Callum Mulvey. Mm. No, yeah, that did know. that did not happen. Uh, no, it did not. No, it did not. Want to get through this? Actually, there's one other scene. There's one other scene that I think we need to dissect. There's two, I'll call them bath time. There's two bath time scenes. The first one is an SBS review took, uh, not, I wouldn't say took offence, but took note of, wasn't it a bit weird that Willem Dafoe's character who barely knew Frances O'Connor just like picked her up, chucked her in the bath, gave her a nice little naked uh, bath with the kids and just rubbed her down, chucked her in some clothes. And then secondly, 
this is the scene that I think they should have had a, a very specific shot in just to clarify. But anyway, so Francis O'Connor's character's off out and about with Jack Mindy, I think. Anyway, so he takes a bath, right? And, the two, and he's naked. And the two kids jump in, also naked. And, you know, at first, I think it's only William Defoe's acting that he could get away with it, that it was a sort of a cute scene. It wasn't as creepy. But if you were the mum or, you know, if you stepped back objectively, you're like, wait, this is actually pretty fucked up. But obviously he didn't want that. Anyway, but when the France, when France, when the mum's character walks walks in, right, he's at the mirror, right, shaving. The two kids are naked in the bathtub, splashing about, right, and he's at the mirror shaving, and he doesn't have a shirt on. But there's no actual shot if he's wearing pants or not, or wearing a towel. <laughs> so I thought, is he naked, <laughs> shaving his beard, or what? <laughs> I, I just would have thought for clarity they would have had just a quick shot of him with a towel wrapped around and being like, Hey, your kids are crazy and they're wild animals sort of thing. And she would have just laughed it off, but you didn't have the shot. So I would just say, even though I think he was wearing a towel, I would just say for comedic purposes, he was completely starkers. <laughs> While the kids were behind having a bath. Well, so. you would imagine that put yourself in that situation. Cause that's fucking treacherous territory. Um, yep say you're staying in that house and the kids jump in the bath and you can't stop them mm. at the very least, like you would a, get out, you'd get out of the bath straight away. A get out of the bath, B get out of the room, like whatever else, but at the very, <laughs> run, run, very run, out least, of, run out of the house, mate, run out of the house. <laughs> at the very least you'd, you'd pull your jocks on and just have the rest of your bath wearing a pair of jocks or, or something, mm. you know, like not yeah. just, you know, have the old slug crawling around, but <laughs> <laughs> why, is, why is a slug crawling around, mate? Uh, I, I think it was one of those things where they're meant to be these sort of very liberal, hippie, greenies that nudity shouldn't be ashamed and it's not weird. That's that's how I would interpret the 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 mum's very sort of casual attitude to the whole thing. Mm. And it makes sense. Their characters make sense doing that. However, mm. I guess for... And his reaction was a normal reaction, but I guess to be honest, like it is a cute sort of scene, but I guess at the same time, his character really should have just, it should have been a quicker scene. He should have just got out of the bath, wrapped a towel around him. And the kid's like, come back in, play, rah, rah, like really innocently. And he's like, he shouldn't Fuck say the word. shit, I'm out. Yeah, more or less, but not in such words. But you know what I mean? I think that's how the scene should have played out. And he's like, well, you guys have a bath. I'm going to have a quick shave because I'm going to go out tomorrow and I need to do this sort of thing. But the mm. fact that he sort of stayed in the bath, I don't know. Like, I, I, I didn't I didn't take the scene as creepy, but us objectively as the audience, I thought, mm. <laughs> I don't know, kids. But, Jack, Jack Mindy, what a confusing character. Yeah. So, like I said, he was definitely doing the, the old Sleeping Beauty with Francis O'Connor. And on that note, let's talk about the beautiful Francis O'Connor. I'll better come in. I'll be fine. Who... For a long time, I only knew her as the love interest of Brendan Fraser in Bedazzled or the mum in uh, Artificial Intelligence. Or, mistakenly, I thought she was the main female lead in 12 Monkeys with Bruce Willis, which, surprisingly, I thought she was the same person, but that's a completely different actress called um, Madeline Stowe, which, to be honest, they look fucking similar. They're definitely... They play similar roles and they're similar in appearance however since i guess with francis she was in those two big american films i just assumed she was american and that's why when i saw yeah. her when i saw her in this movie i thought fuck this american actress is doing a bang on 
Australian accent, like really, <laughs> really fucking good. And then I found out when she was a kid, they moved to Perth and she's, she's lived in Australia for a very long time. So that's why she yeah. can do such a good Australian accent because she's pretty much a dinky die, mate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's a shame, really. I think she's still kicking about in TV, but she's got quite a sort of a feminine and pleasant demeanour, quite sort of sweet. I'm surprised she doesn't get more movie gigs, to be honest. She's a beautiful woman. Yeah. Uh, well, that's true, but that's not why she should just get movie gigs. But um, I just thought, yeah, I thought it was interesting that she's not... She sort of had a big, little bit of a big stint in Hollywood for a bit, and then just on the DL for the rest. Like she, I think she's pretty a lot in TV these days. But um, yeah, anyway, yeah. thought she was worth a mention. And I think overall, get that fucking cat off my screen. <laughs> just shoot away, mate. Shoot away. He's crawling all over me. Hey, Gray. Yeah, just causing causing dramas. But um, no, I thought her performance was really strong. I thought she was really believable as the mum. I saw some interviews saying, oh, she got out of that comatose depressive state really quickly. And I was like, you know what? I I don't, I, I, well, not that I call bullshit, but I just say, yeah, but the movie's not about a man helping a woman out of, you know, a depression. The movie's about this man trying to hunt down the thylacine and the mum and the kids are sort of a bit of a subplot. So yeah, she might've, she might've come out of it quickly, but to be honest, that's not what the movie's about. It's not a, it's mm. not about that. So don't waste any more time than you have to on that beat. So no, and at, at the same time, I think the the timeline of the film is a little bit hazy. But um, I think if you work it out, like every time he goes out into the wilderness, he's going for twelve day stints, mm. and he goes for two or three of those before you know before the final act. So he's been there for months. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He'd been there for months. Actually, one, I'm glad you brought that up because it jogged the memory. I don't know if this was the editor's decision or the director's, but okay. So when he first goes out to the wild or second time, you know, first and second time, yeah, show us the car journey, show us the car rocking up, uh, show us the car arriving at the house. But when he goes out third time onwards, we really, like when he's in the wilderness, right, he's holding the rifle, does his traps, and then the next shot will be the car pulling up to the house and then a house scene. You know, by the time he's been out that many times, we really don't need that shot of the car pulling up at the house. We know it's far. We know it's long. He literally could have just been standing there or sitting in the sitting in the rain and then cut to him sitting at the nice warm table with the family. Mm. I think that would have been, A, saves you a bit of time, but also it's clever trans clever cuts that from him sitting in the rain, huddled, freezing, to him sitting in a nice warm sweater in a nice warm house with this sort of, pseudo family that he's acquired I, I just, surrogate family surrogate family that's the word i was after and i just think that would have served the story better is that it would have been great little cuts but also you would have saved time like how many times did we see that fucking car rock up to that house it seemed mm. like a lot by the time we got to the end of this film i thought yes we get it okay the long distances we you don't need to tell us the same bit of information 10 times just cut <laughs> from just cut from him in the wilderness and cut to him back at the house that's all we need we get it probably better off extinct in the end i felt like that was the most powerful part of the film was a seeing him kill the the thylacine b seeing him show the respect to the thylacine and see that scene um you know 
the, the moment that I thought, yeah, I can understand how this one best cinematography was that scene where he was emptying out the ashes at the top of that cliff and just the the wind, the ashes in the wind, the sunlight highlighting. Oh, you, you, got, know, you, you got sucked in by the landscape. Here's this bloke. What, you, I did, what, you, you, you don't like the beautiful landscape of Smithfield Plains in Northern Adelaide? Fucking toffee. Fucking right, I don't. Fucking toffee fuck. But when I think of, and this this is again the layman, but when I think of cinematography, you know, like you said before, some people think it's just the beautiful landscapes and whatever else. I actually think I've got a couple of friends at work as photographers or cinematographers and what they try and boil it down to when they tell me about it is just light, clever use of light. Mm. And I think it was, you know, beautifully lit, beautifully filmed. It showed credit to Willem Dafoe as well showed a beautiful subtle amount of emotion there and and that's all the like you said it's got all the emotional crescendo and closure that Sleeping Beauty didn't and I think it was just those few short scenes that helped it get over the line for me. Oh for sure and that's what I said to you I think the reason why I really enjoyed this film is I have watched a few films in between uh, this one and Sleeping Beauty but in regards to the podcast is just that sleeping beauty just had nothing had no emotional core with this film did and uh, no thanks to julia lee uh yeah <laughs> what can you say to that i don't know anyway now but that was a beautiful scene like i said if they just tidied up the climb like there's two climaxes really to the story there was a bit of a I don't know if you'd, you'd call it a twist, but a shock death of the mum and the daughter. Like, obviously, if they tied it up, how that sort of unfolded. Well, you sort of had three mini climaxes, really. You had him with the other hunter, and that was a tense situation, and he just survived. Then, obviously, the consequences of Jack Mindy making that phone call. And then, you know, seeing that the two people are dead and the boys in foster care, I reckon that could have been handled better. And then you had him killing the thylacine. Those are three real great action sequences. But two out of three were good, but the 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 family, unfortunately, not so much. If you got all three ducks in a row, fucking hell, that would have been a really strong finish. It would have mm. been really great. Like I still think it's yeah. great anyway, but um, they just missed the mark with the family. But yeah, if you had all those three beats hit on the hat, like right on the head, then fuck me, that that would have been solid. It would have been so good. I hundred percent agree, and that that would have got it over the line for me because I. I watched this film, I'd say I, I would enjoy it, but it lost a lot of points for me in just not handling those deaths correctly because even though that's one small part of the whole picture, that left a sour taste in my mouth because you spent three quarters of the film building those relationships. And I just felt like that those relationships weren't honoured at the end of it. Yeah, I'd say, you know, how Jack Mendy was like, oh, yeah, Lucy's dead the delivery and that scene was sort of like, hey, that random dude at the pub with the kakadu hat on, which was Dan Wyler. Yeah, he, he died. He died when a tree fell on him. That, that sort of seems like he was delivering that line for a very minor character, not like a central yeah. character like Francis O'Connor's character was. And like I, I touched on before, it's... And Sam fucking Neil, man, he should have done this right. It's like, yes, the woman that we both love died in a fire. You know, like that could have that should have been such an emotionally charged scene but it wasn't even if sam neil's character was at the burnt out house and he was just on his knees distraught some, distraught but 
sort of semi-comatose himself and the little boy was sort of afraid of him and he's just sitting near the generator and you can link that to his connection with um willem but maybe that would have been a more powerful scene so maybe, maybe that fixed all our problems we literally have instead of catching up at jack's fucking house you you literally just take jack's at the like the burnt out house of the family house willem rocks up they had that same confrontation that would have been 10 times better with that backdrop mm. of the burnt out house and the little boy can just sit afraid at the shed looking on at these two nearly get into a bit of a biffo I think that would have been a lot more powerful. And then Willem's like, fuck it. I'm going to go out and find the Slyler scene, finish my mission and just get out of here. And also, Mm. well, from, I don't know about the novel, but for the film, he sets out to finish his mission just so Redleaf stops destroying people's lives in this community and to stop that, I guess, that cycle of um, violence. Want to get through this? Let's go! So let's go into the, I've called this section now, the Australian film checklist. And there's two sections to it. There's a technical side and there's a story side. And I've only got three so far. Was there any intentionally vague relationships in this film? Yes. Oh, I was going to say no, but please explain. Well, firstly, you don't know what the relationship between Jack Mindy and anyone else is. Yeah, well, like I said, I think that was just a big fault with his character. Like I said, if he was just the town cop, the town sheriff, like Roscoe, that would have solved a lot of problems because, you know, it's always that, you know, the semi-corrupt cop playing both sides, you know, with the loggers and the greenies. But yeah, I think that was just a fault with his character, not so much intention. That's the key word, intentionally vague. His was just unintentionally vague. It wasn't, no. it wasn't thought out, I don't think. I was leaning more <laughs> towards the the relationship with Lucy where you can see that he's romantically interested, but you don't know whether he's acted on that or whether he's just an admirer or. Well, well, you know, you know, my opinion, he has acted on it without Lucy's fucking consent going by sleeping beauty. Every time you mention that though, you go straight to man number four. So do you think he's doing like full MMA, like, people's elbow kind of shit or? that's man number three this is a new one man number four <laughs> so don't, he don't, is for, don't forget man number four. Oh, actually maybe he's man number zero he's um what do they call it subject zero or something because she wrote this in 1999 many years before sleeping beauty so maybe he was the original <laughs> man yeah and maybe Sam Neill's character actually left Tasmania, travelled to Sydney, started up an underground uh, sleeping beauty racket in an old mansion outside of Sydney. Could they uh, just pay hey, that woman to run it? Mate, when I upload this video to YouTube, I'm going to say, how is The Hunters a prequel to Sleeping Beauty? Find out how. <laughs> All this dumb YouTube shit. Uh, anyway, no, fair enough, whatever. Uh, was there a passive protagonist? Yes, Willem. Willem was pretty passive, however, not as painfully passive as Lucy and others. So he did his, you know, his barriers eventually shifted and melted and disappeared, and he became a bit more proactive in the sort of in the family setting. But I guess in his work setting, he was just like a soldier. He was just doing what he was being told. But yeah, he was a passive protagonist, and this one too, which is, I'll have to say. This is interesting. So to the Australian film checklist, no clear goals. However, this film actually had the most clear goal for an Australian film I think I've ever seen, which is you've got a hunter, 
his goal is to kill a thylacine for the company. That's 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 the goal. The goal is to kill the Tasmanian tiger, and that's very clear from the start. And that's how the film ends, which is very rare for an Australian film, drama or not, to have a clear goal. And so this one gets a big old tick from me for having a clear goal. Anyway, those are the three points I've got so far for the Australian film checklist. But trust me, as this podcast goes on, that that list is going to grow long. It's going to grow very long. <laughs> I could add, I could add some random shit like, oh, did Michael Dorman or Dan Wiley make an appearance in this film? I'm like, yes, tick that. <laughs> there's this. I'm pretty sure there's three male actors that link every single Australian film ever made. Chuck and Bruce Spence as well. Why not? I was going to say Bruce Spence. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so that's the checklist. He's for the old the, guard. Yeah, yeah, for sure. That was the checklist for the story section. But now for the technical section, which is the one-shot director and budget and box office. So first things first, Billiam, one-shot director, yay or nay? Question mark. I'm going to say nay. So you reckon he isn't a one-shot director? I don't believe he is. Well, I would like to... I believe, I believe it's his debut, his directorial debut, but I reckon he would have gone on to make something else. Well... We'll have to refine this section, but I will say for how we've set this up, no, he actually is. I mean, sorry, yes, he is a one-shot director. However, one-shot director for feature films. In in the TV landscape, he's actually, I'd say, fairly successful. He's, he's made a working career out of it. And I looked into his IMDb and stuff, and you and I would have definitely have seen some of his work before. Like, he's made some stuff overseas now, but early on, he made The Secret Life of Us, which I'm a big fan of, Spirited Jack Irish, which is still pumping away, big show, and your old man's favourite TV show ever made, Satisfaction. <laughs> yeah. He he, um, he yeah, filmed, a, he directed a few of those episodes. And what I'm going to say is... Yeah, well, I think I came across his IMDb and there were quite a lot of Australian TV series on there where it only you know, guest directed, might have done one or two, maybe mm. three episodes here and there. Yeah, yeah. No, like he's, you know, he's done I don't know how other... common that is in the industry, but... Oh, I think that's pretty common. It's pretty, well, it's it's very common now to get one director to film, you know, direct all eight episodes of a series, where back in the day, it was just like, you you do these two, uh, oh, mate, we'll do the other two. It's just too hard, especially with those longer form TV shows. It'd be, mate, like Secret Life of Us, I think had like 22 episodes. If you had to direct all 22 episodes in a row, you'd probably go insane. It's just too intense as as a direct being in that position. What I was going to say is going back to old mate satisfaction, which for our listeners who don't know, that was a TV show in Australia that had three seasons, and it centered around a group of women who worked at a high uh, high escort escort high escort class brothel. high class brothel as escorts. And it was about the dramas of them and their clients, and about the dramas within each other, and then their personal life and how they bleed into each other. And I thought to myself, I know I wasn't going to mention Sleeping Beauty again, but this is a Julia Lee special back-to-back. I tell you what, and I said this to Penny, actually, before I thought about Satisfaction, is that I said, yeah, I tell you what would actually solve a lot of problems of Sleeping Beauty is that if half the film, you know how like they had the party scene, right, and she got exposed to the other women, which, bam, bam, 50, 60 minutes later, we never see them again, never hear from them, never get a mention of them. But if we had satisfactions template of you know the escorts in this high class brothel talking to each other and their relationship with the boss which was you know rachel blake and sleeping beauty but 
you know, if you had Lucy engaging with the other sleeping beauties and they talk about their personal lives, you know, what drives and what motivates them, what brought them here, what's their backstory, their relationships with Rachel Blake's character. I think that would have made a far more compelling piece. And yeah, it would have kept me a lot more engaged. I don't know. How, what did you, what do you think? I agree, but you know, that would have got in the way of Julia Lee's narrative of, of Emily Browning's character not giving a fuck about anyone. Mm. So I don't know. But like, maybe, maybe she might be like Willem Dafoe's character. She talks to the other girls and eventually she learns to care for them. I, I can understand why that would have been good, but that's, <laughs> that's just not the direction she chooses. You know, no, I know that, but I'm just saying for you as an audience member, would you have preferred yeah. what I offered? Oh, for sure, for sure, yeah. Yeah, that's what I'm asking. I'm not gonna. She's not gonna change yeah. her fucking mind. She's got her style, which yeah. <laughs> disagrees with a lot of general audience members, but that's fine. About old mate Daniel, uh, which I don't know how to pronounce his surname. If it's Netheim or Netum, he's like I said, he's prolific in the TV industry. Obviously, this was his one and only feature, but at the moment, he did like I've never seen Broadchurch, but that's a fairly big show. He's, he's directed a few episodes of that. Directed a few episodes of Doctor Who, which. I think everybody knows about that TV show. And currently a big BBC cop drama called Line of Duty, currently starring Kelly McDonald. So he's, he's smashing it in the TV landscape. So good on him. Yeah. Doing very well for himself. So yeah, it's hard. So when we say one shot director, we'll just, we'll just leave it as feature films. But like I said, looking at his, um, like his work from the last 10 years hasn't slowed down a bit. And if he's keeps getting pretty solid work out of television, then there's there's a very high opportunity he might be offered or might want to do another feature film. So what I don't understand though is like, if you're Daniel Netheim mm. and you're literally earning your your crust by directing maybe two three episodes of various TV series a year, mm. like is that sustainable? I don't know. Well, how I think much would he, yeah. How much would you get paid for directing one episode of a series as a guest director? Because he's literally doing less than five each year episodes, and that's it. We just got to invite him on the podcast, and he can uh, explain the situation. Well, it must be clearly enough cash flow. Well, let's just put it this way: so you just this is all assumption. This is all yeah. assuming that if you direct three to five episodes of American or British television three to five episodes might pull in at maybe a hundred K or more. So, I suppose, yeah. and that's, and that's better salaries really. Like just say he gets 20 or 25 K per episode. It's pretty, like, to be honest, I actually reckon he's getting paid more, especially for that line of duty one. That's mm. pretty decent money. Really? It might, it might seem yeah, but, a bit, it might seem a bit sad in the books. Like, Oh, he only directed five episodes across two TV shows, but if he's getting paid 25, 30 K a hit, then fuck, he's, he's making more money than us. So, <laughs> Looking at Line of Duty, which is um, towards the top of his list of credits, but he's directed five episodes between 2014 and 2021. Mm. He did three episodes in 2014 and two episodes this year. But like I said, we I don't know. know we don't know what the salary packet is, and I would say something like HBO's Boardwalk Empire. I reckon if you directed one episode of that, you'd be getting mm. at least at least 50k. To direct an episode. Yeah, boy, you want I'd that say, HBO money. Yeah, I'd say at least 50K because each one of those episodes costs at least a mil or more. So I think some of those people get paid quite handsomely. 
Anyway, well, we can only assume for Daniel, but he's kicking goals in the TV landscape. So let's go to budget and box office. So this film was financed by many, many different people and enterprises and organisations and state film offices. But we'll quickly go through the state film offices, which is Screen Australia, Screen New South Wales, Screen Tasmania. So Screen Tasmania, which had a larger budget than I thought, invested $300,000 into this project. Screen New South Wales injected about $422,500. And Screen Australia financed $2.184 million. So in total, just shy of $3 million, a bit over $2.9 million. And that's, that's all what I can see from records. Maybe they had some more financing, but we'll say for argument's sake, this movie was $3 million. The production company that managed the whole project and everything was Porchlight Films, which actually has a very long, long and successful uh, history financing some pretty good Australian films, and one that we've already reviewed from Porchlight. Yeah, Porchlight Films. Don't, don't, don't Google it. Just guess, you fuck. All right. Well, my guess would be Little Fish, but you are sexy and you are correct. It was Little Fish. <laughs> But this Porchlight Films was riding off the success in the year prior. They financed Animal Kingdom, which obviously kicked a lot of goals. And so many other big productions. The King, David Michaud, who was also the director of Animal Kingdom, did The King, which was on Netflix, which is a really great film. We'll have to review. And I think the most recent film they did was The True History of the Kelly Gang, which was Justin Kurzel. They financed that film. And Adam Alcapur. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Anyway, so they're kicking all these goals. And then I then I typed when I did a little bit of a Google search for Porchlight Films, they ceased operation on the 30th of June 2020. And I thought, man, you guys on the top of your game. Maybe maybe there were a casualty of COVID, but essentially what happened, there was three founding partners and they've all decided to go their own separate ways creatively. They've worked together for like 23, 25 years. And I thought, oh, that's a each their own. That's their personal business. But it's, it's weird, normally when a company or a business folds or they decide to wrap it up, it's not, you don't do it when you're kicking goals. Like they're, they're kicking goals. Like they, the true history of the Kelly gang and the King, and they were doing all this stuff and, and they've been kicking goals for a long time. So I thought it was quite interesting that um, all three founders are like, nah, let's wrap this up. We're going to go our separate ways. And it really established a very successful um, production house in Australia. Yeah. So anyway, well, that's sad, I guess, for their staff and, I guess it's really sad for the industry because I'm assuming they'll, they'll still they'll still be working in the industry, but yeah, it's a shame. It's a shame they're all wrapped up shop. Nothing that would probably surprise you though, but to, for me to get so for me to get those finance figures, I had to go through some of the annual reports. Mm-hmm. So I, I'd say because I had to look at through the annual reports to get those figures, and I would say that every state film office in this country should release a separate annual report for the film industry for that state. So, you know, in Tasmania, it's Screen Tasmania, but to find their annual report, currently it's attached to a department called Department of State Growth. So to find that information, you have to go through their random annual reports. And prior to that, for when The Hunter was um, out and about in 2010, 2011, their funding, you had to find it in the annual report called Department of Economic Development, Tourism and the Arts. So... I would say for transparency sakes and also for 
archiving purposes that every state film office should have their annual report as a separate entity to their whatever department or government agency they're attached to because it changes so mm. often especially up here in the northern territory or queensland or elsewhere it's all the same story and i think screen australia since screen australia is the governing body that i should be able to go to the screen australia website and be like annual report for the 2010 2011 financial year for screen tasmania bang it's there in that website like it should all, I sh it shouldn't have to be across 20 different websites, 30 plus different departments it should be one central entity where I can just go and find all these annual reports, not just for me in this podcast, but fuck, just for anyone, it'd be just easier. Any taxpayer that's curious where their money's going. <laughs> should be. And, and just for better record keeping. So will they do it? Probably not, but it'd be nice if they did. And just to finish off, I guess, really, because we've sort of wrapped up mostly this bad boy in a Tasmanian, uh, what's the word, context, it pretty much seems like this movie was purely greenlit for two reasons, not for the level of creativity and for the, the, the art aspect of this film. It was literally only made for economic investment that if you greenlight this project, it creates jobs and injects money into the local economy. And number two was for tourism. It's essentially a tourism campaign, but what do you call it? It's just like a long tourism ad. And that's essentially why a lot of Australian films get financed because it's trying to attract the tourist dollars to that state or to that town, or it's just purely doing it for economic value of creating a few jobs to get the economy to tick over a bit, which I can see why they do that from a government perspective. But then you really look at it and, and say, well, it's not really about the art at all or the you know creative team behind it then the creative team behind it might help it get over the line and obviously when you've got willem defoe's name attached you're like fuck it let's green light this let's get this out because it's going to get international attention but do you know anybody in 2021 thinking like you know what i really want to go to tasmania i, I it just looks so beautiful i really got inspired when i watched the hunter and I, you know no, nobody says that nobody says that you know, a few people in the, in the, I guess, within the six months of release of the film, be like, oh, yeah, Tessie's really beautiful. But 10 years on, it's not like that iconic film that you have to go and see Tasmania because of The Hunter. You might accidentally yeah. watch it and just say, oh, it's more beautiful than I thought. But it's not like a crocodile Dundee or it's not like... There's other examples. I can't think of them, but you know, <laughs> but you know what I mean. It's it's yeah. one of or, or you see a famous film and it's and the backdrop is New York and you have and you you know King Kong, one of the most iconic films ever made. You know, I have to go to New York City. It's iconic, and the only reason why it's iconic because there's been so many movies made about New York. But yeah, it's one of those things. So the Hunters not put Tasmania on the map, and people don't talk about this film like I guess the government of tassie probably wanted them to but yeah it's interesting why things get financed just for economic development and for tourism purposes and not really for its creative merit yeah yeah it's interesting and to wrap up that section really about budget and box office so budget was close to three million what do you think the box office was with international hollywood heavyweight willem dafoe front and center you're talking global box office? Global box office, my friend. How much more do you reckon this movie pulled in? $3 million budget, box office. What do you reckon? $300 million? I'm going to factor in the fact that people would go to see this film saying that it had Willem Dafoe and before word got out that it wasn't that good. So, <laughs> yeah, I'm going to go. I'm going to aim high. I'm going to go for 20. 20 million, you reckon, made at the box office? Yeah. 
what happens if I told you it made... $1.68 million at the box office. Really? It didn't even, didn't even break even. Mate. Wow. When you make a film in Australia, not even a famous heavyweight like Willem Dafoe can get you over the line. Um, that's, I'm honestly flabbergasted by that. Mm. I thought it would at least, at the very least, I thought it was going to break even. No. Well, you'd think so. Three million is a very tight micro budget for a feature. Uh, but Because I, I remember yeah. like, the film was released 10 years ago, but I remember there being a bit of hype, a bit of ground squall when it was released. I, I didn't see it at the time, but, you know, Willem Dafoe's coming to film a movie in Australia and in Tasmania, which is at least for us, a notoriously beautiful place. Mm. I would have thought that that had appealed to an overseas market, but apparently not. But two things I'd say. Does the thylacine hold any weight overseas? I would say it holds next to nothing. It's, yeah, it's an icon of Australia, definitely an icon for Tassie. But I, I think to anyone outside of Australia, it means next to nothing. And I saw some interviews with Willem and a few others, and he said he'd never heard of it prior to this project. And a lot mm. of the interviewers like, yeah, no, nah, I'd never heard of it. And then they said, oh, when I found out, it was really cool. But you've got, you don't really have that... Um, that base support outside of Australia. It means nothing to anyone overseas. It's like, would you know that random animal in Chile that got extinct in the 1920s? Fuck no. Why would we know that? <laughs> Chupacabra. <laughs> no, unfortunately yeah. not. But anyway, so like the thylacine holds no weight for an international audience. So, and also with Willem Dafoe, as much as you and I love and respect him, he's never really been too much of a leading man. He's always been a character actor and more in a very, his, his strongest in, his, in a, as a supporting capacity. I'd love to see him more as a leading man, but he's not your Tom Cruise. He's not your, he's, he's a big Hollywood heavyweight for sure. And he's very well respected. But he doesn't. He doesn't have the common man's draw card. I would say, mm. if that makes sense. Yeah. So, but I, I think another issue as well is distribution. So you hear something like, "Oh yeah, the Hunter screened in the USA." Okay, where in Wyoming in that one cinema? <laughs> you know, it's sort of like, <laughs> you know, when we were in Adelaide and Palace Nova would only play that one random French film. It's just like, okay, so the Hunters in Europe, sorry, the Hunters in England, it's in America, but how many cinemas and how much, how wide is its dis distribution? And I would say it's probably pretty minuscule. Well, that's, I suppose, the thing that we do have to remember as well is like, you've got Willem Dafoe who comes to Australia to film, you know, this niche film. And that gets us excited because, you know, Hollywood actors coming to Australia and blah, blah, mm. blah. But Meanwhile, the rest of Hollywood still trundles on. You've still got the big movies, the big budget movies, the big actors, the big actresses just pumping out high-quality stuff, as they always do. And the the box offices across America can more than, more than easily hold their own just looking after those films. Mm -hmm. So there wouldn't be a huge market for distribution in America. It would have been a niche film over there even more so than here. I was going to say something. Also, are we just going to gloss over the fact that they've just made up that thylacines have a, a paralyzing bite? <laughs> well, the only thing I was going to say about that is how the fuck would Red Leaf Corporation know that? Yeah. It's like, oh, we've it's just been discovered this 
um, many many years after it's been pre presumed extinct. Mate, all we could all we could uh, assume really is Jara, which I don't know what sort of name Jara is. Jara Armstrong. He found the thylacine because don't forget he was sort of working for Redleaf Corporation. So he found the thylacine, thylacine bit him and he's like, oh fuck, I'm paralyzing up. He gave Redleaf a quick call and said, mate, do you have any anti-venom for this? He said, no, nah, I didn't even know this thing was real. It's like, oh, okay, cool. <laughs> so I had no idea how Redleaf would have known about this because I'd, I'd never heard of that before. If it had been extinct since the thirties, then who knows? Let's just, just chuck that in the Julia Lee bin of uh, enigmatic, uh, unexplained phenomena. Yeah, it, it just threw in like that little dash of little dash of sci-fi in there, you know. But yeah, why not? Fuck it, why not? Um, also, I, I found it funny that uh, Jara, which you know, Jara is a species of Australian eucalyptus, mm. is the name of the American that rocks up in Tasmania. You know, like Jara was an American scientist slash hunter or whatever else. They just turned up in Tasmania and just fell in love with the place and decided to stay. But he was all already named after an Australian native tree. So, well, that was his calling. Mm. Oh yeah, good on Willem Dafoe. He actually showed up to the premiere in Tassie in Hobart. So you hey. know, months or a year after filming, he rocked up to the uh, premiere, which is pretty rare, to be honest. Very rare. But I reckon Willem one day might stoop as low as our podcast. <laughs> He yeah. better he better stoop as low as his podcast. Yeah, um, and because like you you've heard it right here, Willem, Marcus and myself are two of your biggest fans. We love oh, you. We work. are. We love you. We no, we love your work, but we also love you as well. Yeah. Uh, and and on that note, what I'm going to say is to wrap up the uh, podcast is, where's my pig? <laughs> where, where where's my truffle pig? Where, However, where's my pig? And you say to yourself, well, that's Nicolas Cage in the new movie called The Pig. And I thought to myself, you know what? Willem Dafoe and Nicolas Cage are very similar. And what I mean is this, is that Willem Dafoe and Nicolas Cage aren't afraid to take on any but crazy fucking films. They're keen as beans to do crazy shit. And they don't, their character, well, uh, who knows about Nicky Cage these days? He's just rogue. But, you know, they're not afraid to star in some random independent film in a foreign country. As long as they like the story, they're like, yeah, I'll do it. <laughs> um, so that's what they've got something in similar. They're both very unique looking, very unique in their performance. Willem Dafoe, clearly a far superior actor. <laughs> but I, I just say they're very similar like in a lot of films Nicky Cage has been in besides the quality of the film but if you looked at the story itself I'm like yeah Willem yeah Willem could do this he could get in that yeah. and that's why I just thought because <laughs> the, the only reason why I said where's my pig uh, A because I can't wait for that film to come out but B there's a teaser trailer for The Hunter that goes for 40 seconds. And you know the scene that you're saying that was really poignant and beautiful about him spreading the ashes of the thylacine. In this in the trail in the teaser, he doesn't spread them, he's just standing there. But there's there's a line that I don't even know if it's in the movie that Willem Dafoe mutters that says, Where are they? <laughs> and all I could picture is like, you know what? If they remade this movie, please cast. Uh, Nicholas Cage in it and be like, where, where, where's my thylacine? <laughs> where's my tiger? 
Where? Where's my tiger? <laughs> yeah, he'd probably he probably wouldn't say thylacine because it's too complicated. But yeah, he'd be like, "Where? Where's my tiger?" <laughs> oh. <the> t- <laughs> <laughs> oh. Sorry, sorry. I just like visually. <laughs> I just visually, I just visually thought of Nicky Cage in that final scene, <laughs> and like, he's like, "Oh, should I shoot the tiger?" And he puts the gun down, and the thylacine comes charging at him, and then he just yells out, "No, no, the tiger is in my eyes. The tiger's in my eyes. <laughs> no, not the tiger. Not, the, not the tiger. Oh, no, it's in my eyes. <laughs> oh, fuck. Somehow." I just think Nicky Cage, I, I tell you what, he does pretty much anything now. Surely if we got like 10K together, we'd say, hey, there's a movie, The Hunter with Willem Dafoe. Could you just dub your voice over his lines? <laughs> <laughs> surely, surely he'd do that for fucking 10 Man, That bloke does anything now. I would pay yeah. a lot of money to get Nicky Cage to dub all of Willem Dafoe's lines in The Hunter and just add him, add him one new line when he's like, put in a bit of, you know, you know how there's like no narration in this film? There should just be a bit where Willem's looking solemn holding the rifle out in the wilderness. It's snowing. And then you just hear this narration that says, where's my tiger? Where's my thylacine? Oh, dear. Fuck, that's good. I love that. I, man, I want to see this movie again with Nicky Cage dubbed over. Why stop at The Hunter? No, nah, you're getting I carried like away it... now. We'll just stay with The Hunter. On that note, what we'll <laughs> say is that that was our special back-to-back episode of Bullshit Bronchitis with Julia Lee for Sleeping Beauty and The Hunter. We hope you enjoyed it. As we say on the podcast, what do we say on the podcast? I don't know anymore. Thank you for listening to another episode of Bullshit Bronchitis. We watch the Aussie films so you don't have to. And fuck Richard Wilkins. <laughs>